This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com slash system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com slash system. Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including eBooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, this is Lily Gorin with the New Books Network, the New Books and Political Science podcast. Today, I'm joined by my colleague down the street, Mark Berlin, um, who is author of Criminalizing Atrocity, the Global Spread of Criminal Laws Against International Crimes. This book was published in 2020 by Oxford University Press, and it is a dive into our understanding of criminal laws, atrocity laws, as Mark refers to them, um, and international crimes and how those have sort of spread in legal systems across the globe. But I'm going to let Mark explain that to us. I'd like to welcome Mark Berlin to the New Books and Political Science podcast and ask him to tell us a little bit about himself and how he came to this particular project. Hi, Mark. Sure. Hi, uh, Lily. It's nice to, really nice to be here. Thanks for having me. It's um, quite an honor. Uh, so how I came to this, well, I guess it depends on how far back you want to go. <laughs> But um, as with many academics' first books, this came out of my dissertation. Um, and I guess I can kind of trace that back to, um, my, I mean, so an interest in international law is kind of what got me interested in political science in general. I mean, I came into political science through an interest in international law. And um, I actually don't have much of a background in political science before graduate school um, and because I um, had studied music. And, um, and that's a whole other story, um, in and of itself. But as I, what got me interested in in politics and political science generally was this kind of fascination with the phenomenon of international law, like the idea that there could be laws above states that somehow restrain them, particularly when it comes to things like warfare, um, was just really fascinating for me. So when I was doing my graduate work at UC Irvine, um, that was kind of what the kind of substantive topics that I was kind of grounded in. And what I was particularly interested in was kind of criminal accountability under international law. Like how is it possible that individuals, say government and military officials could be prosecuted or acts they committed um, in warfare or uh, human rights violations against their own people. Um, And so what I was like kind of narrowly interested in at the time was this phenomenon called universal jurisdiction, um, which is a legal principle that says that the domestic criminal courts of one state could have the authority to prosecute crimes individuals for crimes, um, no matter where they were committed or against whom they were committed. Um, And so the most famous case of this 
principle being applied was the arrest of the um, former Chilean dictator, Augusto Pinochet, in uh, London in 1998 on a, an arrest warrant by a Spanish judge um, for violations committed um, under his rule in Chile. Um, so that was kind of a landmark uh, arrest and case. And that um, so that principle, universal jurisdiction, is really fascinating because it, it essentially uh, you know, deputizes the criminal courts of all countries to prosecute the most serious international crimes, war crimes, genocide, crimes against humanity. So I was particularly interested in that, the operation of that principle and the politics around its application. And, and I, I became interested in the idea of like how countries come to pass laws to enable their courts to exercise universal jurisdiction. And uh, so, you know, I started looking into the literature and, you know, I wanted to know um, how these laws spread around the world because there, they, there are, it's necessary to have these laws in order to exercise this principle in order for the courts to be able to, to prosecute crimes committed in other places. Um, so I, I was thinking, well, you know, the answer to the question of why countries pass universal jurisdiction laws is probably related, or I could probably learn something from the question of why they pass criminal laws criminalizing these international crimes in the first place. I mean, these laws are complementary. You need the statute criminalizing the offense plus the law allowing the jurisdiction to be um, exercised. So I was like, well, obviously somebody's already answered this question. You know, why do countries pass these laws? So all I have to do is, you know, poke around a little bit and I need to find out, you know, what scholars have figured out as far as why countries pass these laws. Um, and I started digging into it and I, I couldn't find anything. I couldn't find out why countries pass these laws. And I, was, I couldn't find any studies about why, why countries had passed them or, or studies in which, uh, you know, even somebody had kind of traced the patterns over time by which they spread around the world. And so that was kind of like the aha moment for me where I, you know, I wanted to find out the answer to this question to answer another question. But I realized that nobody had answered this first question. And so that was a great opportunity for me to kind of look into this and, um, and try to answer it. So I did like a little pilot study first, trying to um, just collect data on genocide laws. And, you know, I discovered that there were some data sets out there that established like what laws exist on the books around the world. Um, you know, Amnesty International has a big kind of report about this. Uh, but you know, I needed to know when these laws were actually adopted. You know, just knowing what laws are on the books today it is you're still very limited in being able to draw inferences about why they were adopted if you don't know when they were adopted. So I needed to, to go and try to find out when these laws were adopted. And so I, I kind of initiated a little pilot project when I was writing my you know, prospectus for a dissertation to try to see if, if it was even feasible to collect this kind of data because there's not a lot of um, models of kind of cross-national longitudinal studies of kind of uh, national law adoption with the exception of maybe constitutional law. Um, and so I didn't have a lot of models for this, so I needed to kind of figure out if it was, if it was even possible. So that, it, it worked out for me. You know, I, it was, I was able to establish that it was possible to do this kind of data collection and that there was even something interesting about the patterns that merited substantively, um, you know, and analytically to, to, to go forward with this. Uh, so, yeah, I guess that's um, a little bit of a lengthy explanation.
So the book is essentially two prongs, how and why. Um, and, and so the question is like, how did states, countries, um, decide to, to pass, implement, um, put on their books, um, laws about crimes against humanity, about genocide, about atrocities, particularly if they were countries that perhaps were doing some of this stuff, which is what I found really interesting as you sort of trace this through the book. Um, And also, not only how did they do it, but then the question was, why did they do it? Um, Why did they choose to do this? And you also put this into a context that has a um, a sort of, as you say, there's a sort of temporal construct around this, like when these things happened. Um, So I'd love for you to sort of first talk about this, this broad question of how, how did they do it? Um, and is there, is there something that like one state did that another one followed that another one followed? Um, and then we can get into why and, and some of the other stuff. Yeah. So that's, that's a great way to get into this. Uh, so one thing I discovered in collecting this data and that became apparent to me over time is that the question of why is inextricably linked to the question of how. In other words, you can't really answer the question of why countries have passed these laws if you don't pay attention to how they adopted them. And by that, what I'm getting at is that there is essentially two pathways through which countries may typically adopt new criminal laws or criminalize new offenses in their national law. The first is kind of what we would intuitively think about when we think about criminalizing new offenses, a government takes the initiative to adopt a new, say, standalone statute, you know, the War Crimes Act in the United States or the Genocide Act in the United States, both passed in the 1990s, um, or I'm sorry, the Genocide Act passed in the late 80s, um, and or, you know, or amending an existing criminal code. You know, most countries in the world, not all, but most have kind of these comprehensive criminal codes. And if you want to criminalize a new offense, you might just amend that code or add something onto it. That's um, what I call the kind of targeted legislation pathway. And it's you know, already kind of intuitive expectation about how criminal offenses get adopted. Um, and certainly many countries criminalized atrocity crimes through that pathway. But what I also found is that a very large proportion of countries, you know, roughly half or so, depending on which particular offense you're talking about, uh, adopted through a different pathway. And that is through the, the decision to rewrite their criminal code entirely. So countries not irregularly, you know, occasionally decide to rewrite their criminal codes, their national criminal codes in their entirety. Um, I did, I crunched the numbers and it's maybe about two and a half new criminal codes per year since uh, World War II around the world. So it's not totally rare. It's not an everyday occurrence. Um, and, and the thing is when they decide to do that, uh, that is, triggers a number of dynamics um, that we'll get into that increase the likelihood that legal ideas or particular criminal offenses 
that otherwise would not have likely gotten on a government's agenda um, does get into the mix of decision making and legal ideas and 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 eventually could get into the final product. So, you know, one is one pathway to adoption is through kind of this targeted legislation. The other pathway to adoption is as one piece of a much larger comprehensive wholesale rewriting of a criminal code. And in terms of those two pathways taken, did you find a pattern of kind of countries that did one or the other? Yeah. So um, I I have a few hypotheses in the book about uh, how the dynamics around these patterns might be different. Um, But ultimately, what I find is that the types of countries who adopt these laws through targeted legislation, those countries um, tend to be countries that are that for which these laws represent kind of the least threat or the lowest potential costs in terms of like, are they likely or not likely to violate these laws or commit the kinds of offenses that these laws are trying to criminalize? So in kind of operationalizable terms, um, you know, democratic states, for example, there's a lot of literature that shows that democratic states, more democratic states are much less likely to commit physical integrity rights violations generally, um, you know, killing torture, war crimes, crimes against humanity. Um, And so those kinds of countries are more likely to say, like, take the concerted initiative to want to criminalize these offenses. Um, What's interesting is that the, the correlates or the determinants of adoption through this targeted legislation pathway are not the same as the correlates or determinants of adoption through the larger wholesale criminal code reform process. So I found that, for example, regime type doesn't matter when it comes to the question of what kinds of countries are more or less likely to adopt atrocity laws once they have already made the decision to rewrite their their criminal code. Um, So I found that regime type doesn't explain variation in those decisions, um, uh, propensity for war, you know, another kind of variable you might expect to relate to the costs and benefits of adoption don't explain, doesn't explain variation of the decision in the criminal code reform process. Um, so yeah, so to answer your question, yeah, the, the correlates are different for these two pathways and that kind of, gives me confidence or kind of confirms my hypothesis that there's kind of different political dynamics underlying these different uh, pathways. And in terms of those different political dynamics, this gets to some degree to the why question. Um, And you start the book by sort of puzzling over like, why did Guatemala pick this up? Um, and you have a whole chapter on Guatemala <laughs> and their decision to, you know, sort of go down this path. But one of the things that you keep sort of pointing to in throughout the book is like, why did these regimes that were going to get into trouble uh, or people in these regimes who are going to get into trouble for having committed these atrocities? Why did they do that? Right. Yeah, exactly. So it's, it's pretty intuitive from, you know, a, uh, 
just from a you know everyday person perspective, but also from a political science perspective, to expect that countries who are most likely to commit uh, acts that would violate these laws would be least likely to adopt them. Um, I mean, that's you know that shouldn't be surprising, um, you know, or uh, that's you know it's, it's a very intuitive. Um, uh, idea, and it's it's well supported by a lot of other types of studies on, say, why countries ratify human rights treaties. So there's a lot of research that shows that countries who are less likely to violate human rights treaties are more likely to ratify them. That's pretty um, straightforward. You know, it's a kind of cost-benefit argument that, you know, the costs are lower if you're not expecting to violate them. So there, that's kind of the puzzle that motivates the book. You know, why does a country like Guatemala, who adopts these laws in the 1970s, like during their civil war, there's widespread and systematic human rights violations committed by the, the military government. Um, you know, why would a country like that adopt laws that basically criminalize its own behavior. I use the case of Guatemala because it's a case where these laws eventually lead to a prosecution or many prosecutions um, decades later. But, you know, you can use that to represent dozens of other states who did adopt these laws under, say, authoritarian regimes or abusive regimes. Uh, And, you know, you might say, well, well, they did, they, it's not that surprising. It's not that puzzling because these countries, you know, in an authoritarian regime, you control the justice system anyway. So you could easily predict that these laws aren't going to be enforced or exercised. So they're kind of like window dressing. You get to score some cheap political points. Um, But, you know, I make the argument or, you know, I, I, I try to make the case at least that, um, they're not, they, they might be low cost, but they're not entirely cost free. You know, um, there is a chance that down the road they could be exercised if the abusive regime in power gets overthrown or replaced. Um, and just on a political level, governments generally don't like to draw attention to their abusive behavior. So kind of passing these laws would shine a light potentially on their human rights record. And, you know, just empirically, if these laws didn't pose any threat or didn't weren't seen as risky or threatening, then we would expect abusive and authoritarian regimes to adopt them through targeted legislation at the same rates that, say, democratic states or less abusive states uh, adopt these laws. And that's not what we see in the actual data. So, you know, it doesn't fit the observable implication of that, um, that explanation. And so what did the data... And you have a multi-method approach in this book um, in terms of doing both quantitative and and qualitative research and integrating interviews, as well as a substantial data set. What did the data indicate in terms of these kinds of authoritarian regimes that have a tendency to be in violation of sort of laws, um, atrocity laws? Right. Yeah. So I get at this. You're right. I get this question from multiple perspectives and we could go deeper into that. um, The research design logic, um, if you like. But uh, ultimately, what I find is that the decision by authoritarian or repressive regimes to adopt these laws does not reflect a uh, concerted, deliberate initiative 
on behalf of the, these governments. In, in other words, it doesn't reflect their, their own preferences, say, about you know, the likelihood uh, that they, the, the likely costs or benefits that they might face from adopting these laws. Instead, what the adoption um, reflects is the decisions by those technocratic legal experts who are appointed by those governments to draft these large-scale criminal code reforms. In other words, the, to the extent that authoritarian or repressive governments do adopt atrocity laws or have adopted atrocity laws over the decades, it's much more often been through these processes of criminal code reform. And the decision to include these laws uh, better reflects the preferences of those technocratic designers than they do of the government officials or, or leaders um, themselves. And this is also where we get into a little bit of like what is often considered the weeds of international law, mm. um, is that it's not an area that most people have a lot of familiarity with. Um, it's, you know, it's certainly not something that we can sort of talk about, like your fifth amendment rights in the United States or something to that effect. Um, and it's, it's often been this highly theoretical kind of realm um, with like law of the sea and treaties and so forth. And so the, the people who end up writing these laws are ones who have been steeped in it um, and who are often separated from the public in lots of ways because they're educated and so forth. Can you talk a little bit about, you know, the sort of how this realm of international law sort of comes to operate in this way? Yeah, so this is, you know, this is a big story. Uh, you know, there's a lot of aspects to this, but um, let me see if I can just kind of give you the con- the, the basic contours of it. Um, so our, the body of international law that we refer to as the international criminal law um, is the body of international law that subjects individuals to criminal accountability for violations of human rights. Um that's a, it's a relatively new body of international law and represents a kind of revolution in international law because international law traditionally was meant to regulate relations between states and didn't really impose any kind of accountability or liability on individuals. That changed um, with the Nuremberg trials after World War II, where the kind of, I think, the 21 or 22 highest uh, ranking surviving Nazis were prosecuted um, in an international court for war crimes, crimes against humanity, and and crimes against peace. Um, The creation of that tribunal, as well as a number of treaties in its wake, the Genocide Convention, the the 1949 Geneva Conventions, for the first time really established this edifice of international rules and obligations that did uh, for the first time, like I said, um, uh, impose criminal liability on government and military officials. Um, so that's nice in 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 theory, but you know how do you actually enforce that? So Nuremberg was an international court. Um, the states who d- negotiated these treaties didn't 
weren't very interested in the idea of establishing a new permanent international court that would have jurisdiction over these crimes going forward, which is, you know, if you're a political scientist, that shouldn't be surprising because we know that governments don't like to, you know, subject themselves to greater scrutiny, especially in an area like national security that represents kind of their most fundamental interests. So at the same time, uh, you know, because they didn't want to establish these a new international court, the kind of second best um, you know, enforcement model would be to have domestic courts be the main enforcers of these these laws. So even though this kind of became the uh, the dominant enforcement model of these treaties, it's actually an idea that predates these treaties and kind of originates in a, in a group of kind of elite criminal law experts and scholars and practitioners in Europe um, going back uh, to the early 20th century, who are all kind of leaders in this uh, prestigious technocratic uh, organization called the International Association of, of Penal Law, um, uh, or the AIDP, which is its uh, French language acronym. It's a Paris-based organization. And uh, the leaders of this organization had long been interested in establishing an international criminal law regime, which they saw as a means to kind of promote world peace or kind of restrain war. Um, So they had long tried to establish an international criminal court that could prosecute government leaders leaders for, say, uh, waging illegal wars or aggressive wars. But not surprisingly, these ideas didn't, never really went very far uh, because, you know, states don't like those kinds of ideas generally. Uh, so they, at, they um, because they were kind of elites and, and you know, kind of the leading scholars in their own countries, um, you know, Belgium, France, Germany, um, they were in, a, you know, in the position to be appointed later on by governments to... Uh, design these treaties, uh, like the Genocide Convention, like the Geneva Conventions, like the the, the Charter for the Nuremberg um, Tribunal. And so they took that opportunity to advance the idea of, uh, the the, the ideas about how to promote uh, a a functioning international criminal law regime. So you had their ideas about establishing an international criminal law regime and, you know, how that would work. At the same time, you know, these were criminal law specialists. These weren't international lawyers. Um, And so they were primarily focused on national criminal law, even though they had this interest in the international realm. And so one of their kind of more fundamental interests, even before you start talking about international law, um, was this idea of kind of promoting a science of criminal law. Of, of using kind of new understandings from sociology and psychology um, and criminology to figure out how to design criminal law in a way to best protect society from criminal offenses, um, as opposed to just trying to punish criminal offenders. And so one of their ideas was that using science, we could establish a science of criminal law and thus, you know, kind of devise universal criminal law standards that could be serve as kind of 
standardized models or kind of off-the-shelf models that you know countries would unify their criminal law systems around. And you know, this would promote a kind of international criminal law system by kind of unifying all of the country's criminal laws around the same principles and offenses. So this idea was also, you know, a very salient idea for these same scholars who were appointed to draft these international criminal law treaties. And so they had previously been thinking about, well, if, if, if states aren't going to establish an international criminal court, one way we can try to approximate an international criminal law system um, that aligns, you know, with our you know, pre-existing ideology is to get countries to take international offenses and incorporate them into their domestic laws. Um, that way, even though there's no international criminal court, countries' national criminal justice systems will be able to prosecute these international offenses like war crimes and, and crimes against humanity. So it would kind of be a, a kind of de facto international criminal law system. So they succeeded in kind of incorporating that very idea, that very model of enforcement into these treaties, these post-World War II treaties like the Genocide Convention and the, the Geneva Convention. So, um, so that idea gets embedded in international law and becomes the dominant enforcement model for how an international criminal law system is designed to be enforced going forward in the second half of the 20th century. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Do you have a point of sale system you can trust or is it <clears throat> a real POS? You need Shopify for retail. From accepting payments to managing inventory, Shopify POS has everything you need to sell in person. Go to shopify.com system, all lowercase, to take your retail business to the next level today. That's shopify.com system. But as you know, there's also like, then, then nothing not a lot happens. I mean, after Nuremberg, you, you sort of talk about the fact that, that this gets designed and, and, you know, you have the establishment of these international communities like the UN and so forth, but that there's a, a stretch of time where not too much is done. Um, and then there's another watershed moment. Um, can you explain this sort of temporal, uh, temporal, sort of structure around our understanding and in the implementation of um, these kinds of laws against atrocities. Yeah. So, you know, over the next, you know, after Nuremberg and the Genocide Convention, the Geneva Conventions in the late 40s, um, for the next 50 years or so, um, if my math is correct, um, there until the like late 80s, early 90s, there is basically no action at the international level in terms of new atrocity prosecutions. There are no new international courts established um, until the International Criminal Tribunal for Yugoslavia in 1993. Uh, and that, again, perhaps not surprising uh, because we're in this Cold War geopolitical rivalry. Everything that happens in terms of international cooperation is viewed through the lens of this rivalry. So in order to establish new international criminal tribunals, you basically need some kind of cooperation, maybe through the UN Security Council. And that's not going to happen within the context of the Cold War. So we're kind of at a standstill in terms of progress on establishing new um, courts 
for prosecution of atrocity crimes. Um, one of the points I, tr- I, I make in the book and I think is kind of ta- a t- one of the takeaways from what I find is that even though there is this um, general uh, kind of pause uh, or as you know, some scholars refer to as hibernation in the international <laughs> criminal law regime during this period of time, uh, there is other forms of progress and action. Um, so, you know, these same scholars and experts um, and these kind of technocratic elites who develop these ideas about the domestic incorporation of international criminal law and kind of inserted these ideas into these treaties, you know, they're still around and they still care about these ideas. So, and their their successors in the International Association of Penal Law care about these ideas. So these ideas continue to circulate inside the organization and among their leaders. So these uh, technocratic elites still care about the idea that, um, for example, international atrocity law should be included in national criminal laws. So as they continue on over the 1950s and 60s, to the extent that they get opportunities to, say, um, participate in the design of new criminal codes in their own countries back home, uh, they are inspired by these ideas circulating inside the organization. In some case, these individuals are champions of these ideas, and they take the opportunities to incorporate them into new codes that they have the opportunity to work on. At the same time, they spread these ideas through professional conferences, textbooks, scholarly journals, so that criminal law scholars around the world who are influenced by the AIDP, and that's certainly not all criminal law scholars, but but those particularly in countries that are um, you know have links to this organization, um, that scholars and, and and technocratic criminal law elites in those countries come to view these ideas as kind of important um, components of a modern criminal law uh, or modern criminal code um, so that you get to the point where, uh, you know, criminal code drafters who aren't particularly progressively minded or aren't like inspired by the goal of promoting human rights, nonetheless, come to see these laws in a kind of taken for granted way as, well, these are the kinds of laws that should be incorporated into a a modern criminal code, because they're thinking more through the lens of what what are the best practices, what is the state of the art that my professional community has, you know, that the messages I'm receiving from my professional community about the kinds of ideas that are essential or important for a, a modern criminal code. So, so these lo- ideas start to spread in that way and, and kind of take on a more kind of taken for granted status among the kinds of people who are in a position to write new criminal codes. And I, and I do want to talk to you about the research design and the reasons for it. But I also wanted to dive into a little bit something that you talk about in the book with regard to the fact that the, the global South 
has a kind of influence on this in a way that is a little bit unexpected. Mm. Um, and, and that, again, was something that surprised me as I was reading your research, because obviously, you know, we think about the UN and the international criminal courts and the Geneva Conventions as sort of coming out of World War II and, and you know, sort of the global north. Um, but your research indicates that um, what's going on in in southern countries, globally southern countries, actually has a lot of um, traction in this realm. Yeah, there's a few interesting examples of this, and and a lot and a lot of this comes down to the fact that um, ideas among these kinds of technocratic criminal law specialists spread through kind of exemplary models or kind of prestigious uh, individuals and the models that they produce. So um, there's a couple of examples where very prominent criminal law scholars in their own particular communities or kind of transnationally work on the drafting of codes in, you know, what you might pejoratively call like peripheral countries. Um, and that nonetheless, bec- even though those are kind of politically or, you know, internationally not very politically important countries, um, the fact that they had very prestigious drafters of their code lends those codes a prestige um, themselves. So, you know, one example is in Ethiopia, um, in the, the late 1950s, Ethiopia is one of the first countries actually in the world to incorporate atrocity laws into its code. And that, again, that doesn't reflect the initiative of the emperor of the time at the time, um, but more reflects the fact that the emperor wanted to have a set of new modern codes drawn up to kind of bring Ethiopia into the 20th century and to kind of bring it up to the level of the standards of its peers and other countries around the world. So the emperor appoints the president of the AIDP, um, a Swiss um, criminal law scholar and judge named Jean Gravon, um, who uh, is you know a champion of the idea of incorporating international criminal law ideas into national criminal codes. And he's appointed to draft this code and, you know, goes on and does it and incorporates these ideas into it. And that code, you know, even though Ethiopia is usually not looked to as like a model for, you know, institutional design around the world, criminal law scholars around the world take notice of this code because of the prestige of its drafter and because it's seen as exemplifying the state of the art of the new movements in criminal law theory, at least the new movements coming out of continental Europe on criminal law theory and design. Um, so, you know, as criminal law scholars around the world look to this model as like, as um, embodying the most up-to-date ideas, um, you know, the, the, the atrocity law provisions are just one small part of that, but they, but their association with this prestigious model helps raise the profile of these ideas and kind of inspires other code drafters around the world to consider including these ideas to try to, you know, um, 
similarly imbue their their models with the same uh, uh, you know perception of modernity. Um, and so it's like it's global north to global south, back to global north, um, kind of triangle or directional. <laughs> in, right, exactly. In yeah, it's it's exactly. So it be kind of begin. These ideas really begin in continental Europe, uh, but they one kind of major vector of dissemination is into Latin America, and I spend a, a bunch of time in the book talking about that. Uh, but there's a few kind of main intermediaries that are. Uh, strongly involved in the AIDP um, with leadership positions and who kind of are serve as kind of conduits through which these ideas are spread to Latin America. And they themselves um, initiate similar movements in Latin America about kind of the unification of criminal laws and how, you know, and so they devise a, a model code for criminal codes in Latin America. And so all of these ideas about unification and standardization in Latin America, which are strongly influenced by these continental European ideas, uh, help kind of make for more, uh, you know, make make these make it a, a more um, likely uh, place to 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 kind of favor these associated ideas of atrocity laws. And so I did want to ask you about, you know, you, you've got a lot of different methods that you're using in the book and you, and you make an argument with regard to why they sort of build on each other um, and, and help you to sort of see the landscape of both the how and the why questions. Um, and, and you did talk a little bit about your pilot study um, with regard to sort of finding that there was n- no sort of coherent data set. Um, so I would love for you to talk a bit about what it was that you decided you needed to do in order to do this research. Mm, yeah. So it, I spent a few years doing that, traveling around um, and collecting that data set. And then that enabled me to use statistical analyses to analyze the determinants of these two different pathways. Um, and lo and behold, um, the statistical analysis you know, confirmed my expectations that the that the determinants of these two different pathways to adoption, um, uh, targeted legislation or kind of wholesale criminal code reform and have different correlates or different determinants. Um, and also, by the way, in order to do that, I had to collect a different data set on new criminal codes around the world. That was a little less labor intensive, but still took a while. Uh, and so more, sp- more, more important for my argument, I found that uh, countries who, given that they decide to reform their criminal code, um, they're more likely to incorporate atrocity laws um, when their drafters, the types of co- people who would be drafting their criminal code, either have like links to the AIDP, this professional organization, or um, are in a region or have like regional peers, like like countries close by that have the same type of language or legal system um, that have also adopted these laws, which which kind of underscores the importance of kind of legal borrowing, like looking to similarly situated peers to understand what counts as a modern um, or kind of state of the art criminal code. So that confirmed my uh, 
uh, or at least gave me more confidence in my explanation that like borrowing from prestigious sources, professional associations, or exemplary models uh, was a major driver of the inclusion of these laws in new criminal codes. Nevertheless, I was still limited in my ability to kind of confirm the causal mechanisms in my argument. You know, even though I established these correlations, they're still, you know, kind of just correlations and hard for me to prove per se that, uh, you know, that, that the specific causal logic that I lay out in the theory chapter is actually happening. Um, so in order to assess that, I have to do qualitative case studies. So I strategically select um, a number of cases to try to maximize the inferential leverage I can get out of case studies in terms of their ability to um, give me confidence that the theory underlying my statistical correlations is indeed valid. Um, so I, I tried to apply some, at the, well, we're at the time, some new kind of case selection techniques uh, to try to, uh, that, that um, try to maximize the benefits of combining methods of multi-method research. Um, um, and I also tried to apply some what were at the time kind of new cutting edge process tracing techniques for doing case studies in order to um, be as systematic and rigorous as possible in, in these case studies. Um, and there's a number of reasons for that. One was just simply that I knew I was making somewhat a somewhat provocative argument by trying to, you know, political scientists don't, often don't like the argument that what's happening is not very political. Um, and in the way, that's the kind of argument I'm making, but actually... I'm not really making that argument. It's more complicated than that. And, but you know, without getting too deep into that at the moment, um, it seems like what I'm making is an argument that you know politics doesn't matter a lot in this in these cases, and so you know that tends to provoke skepticism from political scientists. And so I wanted to really make sure that I presented these cases in as systematic a way as possible to try to make my argument as airtight as possible. So, um, so I, you know, try to apply what were kind of the most rigorous approaches for doing process tracing. And so, you know, all of these combined, these three kind of things, the historical chapter, the statistical chapter, and the two case study chapters um, combined, you know, give me a lot of confidence in my explanation. And in terms of the case studies that you ultimately looked at, Guatemala figures substantially in in that. And I was very curious about it. Um, but again, you do take up other examples. Um, can can you just mention a couple of those and why they why they sort of flesh out your um, your thesis? Yeah. So the Guatemala case is useful because it's a very unlikely case for the uh, based on existing explanations in political science for the adoption of human rights commitments. Um, so it's a useful case for me to be able to isolate 
um, my explanation from the confounding influence of potential alternative explanations and to really try to assess whether the causal mechanisms in my argument are present in this case without kind of interference from other potential explanations. Um, so that's known as a pathway case. Um, in addition to that, it's important to compare that case to other cases um, in order to assess potentially, you know, the limits of your argument, you know, how, what kinds of cases or scope conditions under which it might break down or not apply. So I have another chapter where I have three shorter cases that are negative cases. In other words, these are cases in which my argument um, seems like it would predict the adoption of atrocity laws, um, like similar to Guatemala in certain ways, um, but that actually don't end up uh, adopting atrocity laws. So they're useful for me to try to, you know, suss out the limits of my my argument, um, as well as help me. To, it also, in the end, also um, kind of confirm other components of my my argument. So what I find, so I look at Colombia um, in 1980, its adoption of new criminal code 1980. Poland with its adoption of a new criminal code in 1969, um, and the Maldives uh, with its adoption of a new criminal code in the 2000s. Um, and those, you know, the, the, the reasons for non-adoption in those cases are, you know, all somewhat different, but in the end, they all provide s- support for some important aspects of my theory. You know, in other words, even though the the ultimate outcome of those cases is not what my theory would predict. Most of the other mechanisms, causal mechanisms that my theory does predict do play out. It's just in the end, there is some, some wrinkles that lead them to not end up having uh, adopted these laws. And those wrinkles are really instructive for understanding kind of the application of my theory or the generalizability of my theory. So after all of this very complex multi-method investigation with trips to many libraries, both domestically and internationally, um, and the production of a very fascinating book um, in international law that is not boring, which is 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 a is a tough standard. Um, <laughs> what is it that you're working on now, Mark? Oh well, uh, the, thanks for asking that question. Um, so I have kind of. You know, I've been you know putting to, to bed this kind of first big research project of my career, kind of tying up loose ends, and then shifting to a new big project. Which one way to think about it is I'm kind of shifting from a focus on the extraordinary atrocities like genocide and crimes against humanity to more ordinary. Um, human rights violations, if I can call them that, um, specifically torture. So I I am focusing on a number of research questions related to kind of the prevention of and prosecution for or accountability for torture. Um, And there's a few different components to this. One, on kind of a a comparative or global level, um, I'm doing a number of kind of statistical or quantitative studies that look at um, kind of the spread of torture laws, more uh, specifically, as well as how those torture laws have changed over time. 
Um, so I'm getting into like the content of the laws too, and not just the existence of them. Um, I actually have a, a new piece that's I think just now just came available um, on kind of the early view um, at the American Journal of Political Science, um, which looks at the question of does criminalizing torture deter police torture, torture by police. Um, um, so, um, you know, spoiler alert, I find that it, it does re- uh, deter some small amount of torture by police if the torture laws in question meet the standards of the definition of torture in the UN Convention Against Torture. Um, and there's a number of reasons for that, which I, I won't go into at the moment. Uh, and folks are welcome to, to seek that out or, or contact me about that. Uh, the other component of, the, of my you know, large research agenda on torture is American focused, actually. So I'm not a scholar of American politics. I traditionally haven't studied American politics very closely. Um, so this is an interesting kind of um, new thing for me. Um, so I'm looking at the history of police torture in Chicago and the Chicago police t- uh, department, which is now well established and well documented. Um, but many folks actually don't know about it, even people who are from the area. Um, so there was a, a, a systematic pattern of torture by police detectives in Chicago from like the early seventies to the 1990s. Um, and since then there's been a lot of, um, uh, you know, uh, the, the city has apologized and actually, passed a reparations package providing kind of financial and other kinds of reparations to survivors and their families. But for two decades, this pattern went on without really any scrutiny by the various types of institutions that are whose job it is to prevent this kind of thing from happening. So one thing I'm interested in is trying to understand how this pattern was able to persist for so long, despite the fact that Chicago had all these um mechanisms or institutions in place that say comparative research on human rights says should be adequate to prevent a pattern of like this from emerging. So I'm looking at this American case, but through the lens of comparative international research on the determinants of human rights violations and human rights change. So not only are you doing American politics, but you're also doing a little sociology. I guess so. Yeah. I mean, I think it's sociological kind of orientation has kind of run throughout almost everything I've, I've done. Um, I think I tended to hang out with the sociologists more than the political scientists when I, where I did my PhD. So that's certainly a big kind of strain running throughout my work. Uh, well, Mark Berlin, I would like to thank you for joining me today on the New Books in Political Science podcast. Um, I appreciated you talking about criminalizing atrocity, the global spread of criminal laws against international crimes, published by Oxford University Press in 2020. Is there a brick and mortar store with an online presence to which you would like to give a shout out? Yeah, so in Milwaukee, there is Boswell Books, um, which is a great local bookstore. um, And so I would recommend that. And they do have an online presence, so I'm sure they can order your book. They do. For for your um, for Christmas gifts or holiday gifts um, at this time of year. Uh, (laughs) Thanks. Thanks so much for joining me, Mark. It's been a pleasure to talk to you. Thank you, Lily. It's been my pleasure.